This is Dear Analyst, episode number 38. And in this episode, I'm going to be discussing the JP Morgan Chase London Whale trading loss that happened in spring of 2012 that led to $6.2 billion, lo- led to a $6.2 billion loss to uh, JP Morgan Chase back in 2012. And I'll also be discussing the little Excel error that occurred that was a domino or a piece of the puzzle that led to that $6.2 billion loss. To give you some background about this event, it happened in April, May 2012. This is just straight pulling from Wikipedia. JP Morgan had a CIO, Chief Investment Office, and the the CIO of this office was involved in a series of selling and buying uh, derivative transactions, specifically credit default swaps. And as a way to hedge the bank's or this, the, the division's value at risk, uh, there's one specific trader in the London office named Bruno Ixel, also nicknamed the London Whale, who accumulated a huge CDS position, which led to the huge loss for JP Morgan Chase, eventually reported on in 2013. And this event led to a lot of investigations around how the CIO and JP Morgan Chase approaches risk management and just risk taking in general. And the interesting thing is that this happened four or five years after the financial crisis. So it turns out that the bank didn't really learn its lesson from what happened to Lehman Brothers and various other financial institutions during the, during the crisis. Uh, so what actually happened here? So the trader, Ixil, he, it's a kind of like a same story that you hear from traders who kind of go rogue. He had a huge loss, and in order to uh, try to get out of the loss, he just doubled down bigger and bigger bets on on that loss, and eventually this exploded in the in his face. But there are other reports that describe a much more institutional problem that led to this huge six point two billion dollar loss. Part of it was also the chief investment office, the CIO. Their job is to hold down the the VAR level, the value at risk um, for the bank. And instead, they used they had three hundred three hundred and fifty billion dollars at their disposal uh, to invest. And what happened was the London office for JP Morgan Chase continued to get involved with these complex derivative trades. And they weren't used as hedges. They're rather just making huge bets um, on CDSs. And as the trader kept on making these bets, what ended up happening was the the market for the these products was so thin that the risk management side didn't really have a good way to model uh, the value at risk because of the thinly traded market. So they actually were taking the same numbers and just apply, applying them day after day to get their risk management model. 
And there's obviously an incorrect assumption because there just wasn't enough data to support the risks that the London traders were taking. And let's take a look here. He eventually, yeah, the, the markets he was trying to disrupt got so thinly traded that he ended up getting the nickname, he ended up getting the nickname Whale and Voldemort. And yeah, after the trades collapsed, regulators found that uh, Ixil's colleagues have been keeping two sets of books to minimize the projected size of losses. And that triggered investigations in the United States and the, and the UK. So can't make this stuff up. It's a really interesting, uh, story. And I, I mean, definitely there's been movies about this type of behavior. I think Rogue Trader was actually a movie that came out. Um, let me see if here. Rogue Trader. I think it was actually based, might have been based on this. Oh no, this definitely wasn't. This was made in 1999. Rogue Trader 1999 with, uh, starring Ewan McGregor, but kind of showing how a trader will just double down on their butts and their loss just end up increasing and increasing until it just blows up in the, the bank's face. Uh, so I would definitely recommend reading, I'm going to link to this article, this uh, Harvard Business Review article that talks about all the different parties that were involved that led to this huge um, mistake, if you will. And the the article points out to the London office just not understanding the complexity of these, uh, basically these synthetic credit products. Uh, the CIO, the headquarters of the of the CIO, the chief investment office, um, didn't wasn't monitoring the trading strategy, wasn't making sure the risk management was uh, keeping in in lock and step with the trades that are being made. Um, and then you have just firm-wide management did not ensure proper controls and oversight as the CIO continued to make bets with this $350, $350 billion uh, bag. Uh, what else is there? The board and the risk policy committee. I guess there's a, a committee that monitors the effectiveness of the I guess the risk management function. Uh, it looks like this started. This looks like this Paul committee started to break down in 2012 at some point. And it looks like, yeah, the, there's just so many different factors at play. Um, but at the end of the day, there was this trader who was just making these huge bets, and um, the internal processes and systems just weren't weren't keeping him in check. Let's put it that way. So like I mentioned, there were a ton of, not a ton, but there was a lot of investigations done by the U.S. and the United Kingdom into what actually happened. And what I really like to, what I want to get into is the J.P. Morgan Chase actually put together an internal task force and they put together like a 130-page report called the Report of J.P. Morgan Chase and Company Management Task Force regarding 2012 CIO losses. And I'm actually going to read part of this report because, I mean, I didn't read the whole 130-page report, honestly, but um, it gets into what actually happened behind the scenes. And also, more importantly, while you're here probably today, is to know the actual Excel error that led to this, led to the risk management team uh, miscalculating what the actual value at risk was and ultimately making 
tell, making it seem like there was nothing wrong with what this uh, London trader was doing. And I can't make it up. I mean, this may seem kind of dry to some people, but I don't know. When you read this report and you read – and this all this stuff I'm reading right now is all from the appendix. And you can't make this up. Like, this stuff is just like – it's just too fucking good. Like, it's just so, so good. And whoever wrote this was – I can't – say for sure but he was he or she was kind of a, a storyteller and it paints the picture of how this value at risk model fell apart and there's a few lines about what actually happened in the in the excel model so let me get to the beat the meaty portions of this report so again this is from the internal task force report from jp morgan chase around the 2012 cio losses and i'm looking at appendix a VAR modeling. So I love this. A lot of this I'm going to skip. I'm going to read some of it to give you some background. VAR is a metric that attempts to estimate the risk of loss on a portfolio of assets. A portfolio's VAR represents an estimate of the maximum expected mark-to-market loss over a specified time period, generally one day, at a stated confidence level, assuming historical market conditions so essentially it's a model with that usually with like 95 percent confidence interval will try to tell the firm at any day here's how much we could potentially lose based on what trades and positions our traders have made uh, up to this point through january 2012 the var for the synthetic credit portfolio was calculated using a linear sensitivity model also known within the firm as the Basel One model because it used it was used for the purposes of Basel One Basel One capital calculations and for external reporting purposes. So we have this model that the risk management team is using, Basel One. It's quote unquote legit. It's uh, you know in sync with external reporting purposes. Uh, but the limitation was that. The model did not comply with the requirements of Basel 2.5, which was, which had, which had been expected to be formally adopted in the United States at the end of 2011. So, and then this is seriously just reading straight from the report here. It's, just, it's, it's so good. One of the traders responsible for the synthetic credit portfolio therefore instructed an expert in quantitative finance within the quantitative research team for CIO, again, that's Chief Investment Office, to develop a new VR model, new VAR model for the synthetic credit portfolio that would comply with the requirements of Basel 2.5. That individual began working uh, began work on developing the, that model in or around August 2011, so a couple <clears throat> a couple quarters before all the shit went down with the London trader, the London whale who made this huge bet. Okay, so the modeler is a London-based quantitative expert. He's a mathematician. He's building models all day, and I'm just gonna read further down here. He's working on this model, and the CIO considered and rejected a proposal to adopt the VAR model used by the investment bank's credit hybrids business for the synthetic credit portfolio. Uh, Because the investment bank traded many bespoke illiquid CDS products, 
its VAR, VAR model mapped individual instruments to a combination of indices and single-name proxies, which CIO market risk viewed as less accurate for CIO's purposes than mapping to the index as a whole. He believed that because the synthetic credit portfolio, unlike the investment bank, traded indices and index tranches, the investment bank's approach was not appropriate for CIO. The model review group agreed, and in early draft of its approval of the model, described CIO's model as superior to that used by the investment bank. So ultimately, what happened was the CIO had this new model, and the internal model review committee group, whatever, said, hey, like we're going to bless this model because it's more in tune with what this CDS product is doing in the market. So we're going to use that model. From September to November 2011, the modeler corresponded regularly with the relevant individuals from the model review group. And on November 25th, 2011, he submitted his new methodology, known internally as the Basel 2.5 model for formal approval. The model review group performed only limited backtesting of the model, comparing the VAR under the new model computed using historical data to the daily profit and loss over a subset of trading days during a two-month period. The modeler informed the model review group that, that CIO lacked the data necessary for more extensive backtesting of the model. Neither the model review group nor CIO market risk expressed concerns about the lack of more extensive historical position data. So this mathematical quant submits the model to the internal model review group and he made it clear that, hey, we don't have enough data to backtest this model to see if it actually works and it you know, can accurately calculate the VAR for all these CDS products our traders are making. But the model review group and the market risk group said, you know what, like, we don't have too many concerns about this, so let's just trust that your model, your model works. During the review process, additional operational issues became apparent. For example, the model operated through a series of Excel spreadsheets, which had to be completed manually by a process of copying and pasting data from one spreadsheet to another. In addition, many of the tranches were less liquid, and therefore the same price was given for those tranches on multiple consecutive days, leading the model to convey a lack of volatility. While there was some effort to map less liquid instruments to more liquid ones, i.e. calculate price changes in the less liquid instruments derived from price changes in more liquid ones, this effort was not organized or consistent. So typical, you know, data wrangling, you're copying paste values from one spreadsheet to another, shit's obviously going to going to be broken and human error will prevail. So we already see some operational issues right there. Uh, some of the pressure, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so there's some more back and forth going on between the CIO and the modeler. And let's see here. And then there's some more about, uh, okay, this, this, this gets a little bit into the nitty gritty, but the model review group discovered that for purposes of a pricing step used in the VAR calculation, CIO was using something called the West End analytic, analytic Suite rather than Numerics, an approved vendor model that the model review group had thought was being used. The model review group had never reviewed or approved West End, which, like Numerix, had been developed by the modeler. So this modeler built both systems that was being used to, he was a 
a, I guess, developer or a software uh, developer that built both of these modeling systems, but the model review group never approved the newer analytical suite. Uh, so let's see here. The model review group did not examine. Okay. The let's see here. Action plan. Okay. All right. So here, here's when something. So, so the models being back. It's being tested. The model review, model review group says, you know, there's enough work underway to complete automation of this model. So let's just go ahead with it. So from February to April 2012, the new VAR model was in operation. A CIO employee who reported the modeler was responsible for daily data entry and operation of the new model. In April, an employee from the IT department also began to provide assistance with these tasks. Notwithstanding this additional assistance, a spreadsheet error caused the VAR for April 10th to fail to reflect the day's 400 million loss in the synthetic credit portfolio. So already, one day, $400 million loss because of a spreadsheet error. It doesn't get into detail what the error was, but we can see that shit's already going, shit's already hitting the fan. The error was noticed first by personnel in the investment bank and by the modeler and CIO market risk and was corrected promptly because it was viewed as a one-off error it did not trigger further inquiry. So a $400 loss doesn't trigger further inquiry. All right, I'm getting a little skeptical. All right, so now in early May 2012, getting closer to when the trader made the big trade, in response to the recent losses in the synthetic credit portfolio, Mr. Venkat Krishnan not sure who that is, asked an employee in the model review group to perform a review of the West End Analytics Suite, West End Analytics Suite, which has noted the VAR model used by the initial steps of its calculations. Again, remember, this was the model that was developed by that original quantitative modeler. The West End Analytic had two options for calculating hazard rates and correlations, a traditional Gaussian copula model and so-called uniform rate model, an alternative created by the modeler. The spreadsheet that ran Weston included a cell that allowed the user to switch between the Gaussian, copula, and uniform ray models. I have no idea what these models are. Uh, let's just see what happens here. Um, oh, so it looks like the West End defaulted to running the uniform rate rather than the Gaussian copula in this one cell which you can check off. Uh, so this already was going against what the model review group had like approved. So did not have, have a huge effect on VAR. So the incident focused reviewers attention on the VAR model and ultimately led to the discovery of additional problems with it. Okay. So more, more mistakes are caught and here's where the Excel error is mentioned um, clear in sight. So although this error did not have, okay, so the after this re-review, a decision was made to stop using the Basel 2.5 model and not to rely on it for purposes of reporting CIOVAR in the firm's first quarter form 10Q. 
Following that decision, further errors were discovered in the Basel 2.5 model. Again, this is the new model that the, this new quant had made, including, most significantly, an operational error in the calculation of the relative changes in hazard rates and correlation estimates. Now, what are hazard rates? If you scroll up, well, I'm scrolling up. A hazard rate is the probability of failure per unit of time of items in operation, sometimes estimated as a ratio of the number of failures to the accumulated operating time for the items. For purposes of the model, the hazard rate estimated the probability of default for a unit of time for each of the underlying names in the portfolio. So at the end of the day, it seems like a hazard rate is kind of like a default rate per day. So how much of the shit on your balance, on your, on your book is going to be like crap, I guess, at the end of the day. And this hazard rate kind of measures that. So there's an operational error in the calculation of the relative changes in hazard rates and correlation estimates. Specifically, after subtracting the old rate from the new rate, the spreadsheet divided by their sum instead of their average as the modeler had intended. So to recap, the model had, modeler had intended to average the changes in the hazard rates, but instead the model summed them. Super basic formula error here. This error likely had the effect of muting volatility by a factor of two and lowering the VAR, although it is unclear by exactly what amount, particularly given that it is unclear whether this error was present in the VAR calculation for every instrument and that it would have been offset to some extent by correlation changes. It also remains unclear whether this error was introduced in the calculation. The end. That's the end of the appendix. So basically we end on, we have no idea this accelerator actually caused things to really plummet and cause the model to not raise any alarms in the CIO office about how much uh, this London trader was putting at risk. But we do know that there was a huge error in the model. And that was, there was this, that was this Excel error that was summing the changes instead of averaging them. And here, I mean, here's where I wanted to try to get into what this means in terms of you, the modeler, the analyst who is doing this day to day and trying to make something that is foolproof and bulletproof in terms of your model. And to be honest, there's really, it's really hard to do that without proper controls. And there's all kinds of software you can now use to make sure that your, your formulas are correct. Uh, but I try to break this down as simple as possible in the Google sheet that's um, attached in the show notes. And when I think about what happened in this, in this scenario where, you know, this model may have underreported the amount of risk that the, the trader was taking, I want to chalk this up to perhaps this was just a simple uh, case of Hanlon's razor, which is like, you know, you can't, attribute blame to this modeler or to the CIO or to the bank because this was just like simple stupidity and neglect. And so the modeler wouldn't have known that the formula was wrong or was like doing, he was doing something incorrect without really analyzing the results day to day because you're just moving fast and ship breaks and you know, all that stuff. Uh, I don't want to say I'm, I'm excusing this person for not catching the error. I'm just saying that, this is one framework perspective of looking at this whole scenario. Even if the model was right and the risk management team was properly calculating VAR, 
would the London trader still have made all the trades and would he not have been flagged? Who knows? So there's a lot of uh, if, thens, and weird scenarios. So how could you prevent your institution from losing $6.2 billion by making sure that your Excel model is correct? So <laughs> going into this Google Sheet, and before I get into this, we'll preface this, preface this by saying I have no idea how to calculate VAR like in Excel. I mean, there's articles online about how to do it really with different formulas and stuff. I really have no idea how to do this um, based on like my domain expertise in this area of like banking and, you know, uh, synthetic credit uh, default swaps. So take whatever I'm saying here with a grain of salt. Um, but I'm just interpreting what I read from that last paragraph in the, uh, in the task report, which is, after subtracting the old rate from the new rate, the spreadsheet divided by their sum instead of their average as the modeler had intended. So I'm going to take two simple examples of showing how the sum and the average can lead to some crazy results, but also why the modeler might not have noticed anything different between a sum or an average. So if you go to the spreadsheet, and um, I'm going to say if you, if you just want to like go straight into seeing the results. You can just go to the blog post for this show, for the episode. But in columns A through C, I have uh, th three columns of data. I have day, hazard rate, and change in percentage. I have no idea if these hazard rates are accurate. I just made them up. But you can see that I have listed hazard rates from August 2nd through August 7th. So it goes up, it comes down. And in column C, I basically track the change and hazard rate. So again, remember the hazard rate is a measure of how much, basically how much of the trades or whatever will default. Uh, I mean, I'm guessing this has specifically to do with um, credit default swaps on how much of this shit will basically default. Uh, but certain days that those default number might go up, other days will go down. Anyways, we're tracking the change in column C. So sometimes that change is positive, the rate goes up, sometimes that change is negative. So this is like the first derivative of uh, the hazard rates, I guess, if, if you want to call it that. In cell C, uh, C9, I take a sum of all those changes, and that sum comes out to 3%. Because I'm basically, you're summing up a bunch of positive change in percentages and a bunch of negative change in percentages, and that sum basically is 3%. You're summing a bunch of negative and positive numbers. But if you look at the average of changes, it's 0.6%. So it's off by a factor of, you know, five, obviously. But if you look at the chart below, you'll see that the, you know, the hazard rate is the blue line, the green line is the change of percentage. So if you didn't actually know the physical, the actual number of the average versus the sum, you might say that the average of the, ch the, the middle number for the change of per change in the hazard rate might be around 3% just from looking at the line chart. But in reality, the average of those changes is actually 0.6%. So on a day-to-day -day basis, if that, if that band of the sum of changes and the average of changes is very narrow, the modeler might not have seen what was happening to the numbers. And I think this applies for uh, for you too. And I mean, this makes the job of model, modeler very hard. If you have incorrectly put in a sum instead of an average, 
and the sum was really close to the average, you may not have known what was happening until it's too late where the sum and the average start diverging a lot, which I'll show in the next chart. But if you take, and so in the report they say the spreadsheet divided by their sum instead of their average. So if we take a hypothetical $100 and divide the $100 by the sum and by the average, you're going to get wildly different numbers. So if you take $100 divided by the sum, you get $3,333. Divide by the average, it's $16,000. So off by a huge factor. Um, a factor of, uh, what is that, by uh, five or six? Now, that is going to be a huge change from a dollar perspective. But again, if you don't, if you're not monitoring the percentages themselves, then uh, that percentage might get really narrow, and narrow, and you might not be able to detect big changes in the in the sums of money, essentially, in the actual and the absolute dollar amount. Now, if you move over to columns H, I, and J in the chart in the in the Google Sheet. I intentionally made the hazard rate incre I, I intentionally increased the hazard rate by five percent every single day. So what does that lead what does that do for the sum and the average? Well the sum of the changes is a sum of five percent increase every day. So you're looking at a twenty-five percent sum of percentages. So that is obviously a huge number when you're because you're not summing in positive and negative changes, you're just summing in positives. But the average of the changes, what is that? It's 5% because every day it increases by 5%. So now you have a much bigger, uh, a much kind of bigger gap in terms of absolute percentages in an absolute percentage between the average of the change and the sum of the change. Um, the factor by which it off is actually comes out to five also, but I just want to point out how different the sum and the average can be now because you're, um, you are summing up a bunch of, of, uh, positive changes. So when you're looking at the, the chart now, you can see a clear divergence between the, uh, the hazard rate and the change in percentages. And I think unless you see this huge, uh, or you, unless you see these outliers where you're, where you see the sum and the average diverge so far, it's really going to be hard for you to notice this error in your formulas. Only when you see such a huge discrepancy between the sum and the average, will you be like, Oh, I guess there is something going on here that I should be worried, uh, be, uh, be concerned about. And, um, I think this is kind of what points what what how I'm modeling this error from this report into this spreadsheet. So again, feel free to tear this apart. I may be doing this completely wrong, so feel free to let me know if this is completely off the marks. But I, I'm trying to get at essentially converting the words from that appendix about the error made into something actionable that you can walk away with. Uh, and again, this is going to be super hard for you as a modeler to know when these errors come up because the changes can be so 
the correct and the wrong answer can be so close together that you may not notice a difference day to day. But only when you see outliers in the data, that's when you're, you're going to be like, okay, I need to investigate this further and figure out, did I actually intend to get the average or did I intend to get the sum? That's when you have to make that big decision and hopefully you don't lose $6.2 billion by that point. All right, so this was an interesting Excel error and hopefully you learned one thing or, or two about how you can better proof and check your your models before they're being used by traders in this case at a bank. So that will conclude this episode. Now, the last thing I want to talk about, another episode I want to talk about from another podcast I listened to recently that uh, drew some interest is the A16Z podcast. And the podcast was the future of decision-making three startup opportunities with Jed Naos and Frank Chen. And around minute 17, they talk about different startup opportunities for uh, disrupting or getting involved with the data pipeline. And I think this is really relevant for any of you out there who are definitely getting into the weeds of extracting data, transforming it, putting it into like a data warehouse, and then eventually getting that into a, a BI tool or and into an, a spreadsheet or Excel file. They basically said around minute 17 that there's comp- there are a lot of like solutions that are trying to attack all different parts of the pipeline from ETL all the way through the you know graphing interface like using Tableau and Excel. And I believe what they were saying around the minute 17 mark was that no matter what happens during that pipeline process, more and more companies are trying to make it easy for business users. So these are like the non-technical people, the non-data engineers to utilize different parts, different tools in that pipeline. So we all know that if you are trying to just create graphs and charts, you can do that easily, well, quote unquote, easily with Tableau, Excel, Looker, or whatever. But as you get further up the pipeline, upstream from where the data is coming, the tools are getting more complicated to use and they're meant more for engineers and data engineers. And there's a huge opportunity, at least according to the um, to Frank and Jad, that um, you can use to you can if you're a startup trying to attack the space. There's so many opportunities upstream up the funnel that you can attack to disrupt what's currently out there. So, uh, thinking of existing solutions for data processing. Um, thinking, I think they also said that the one area that's really ripe for disruption is ETL because it's so complicated and there's so many moving parts and it's very, very, um, labor intensive. And that's where solutions like, uh, Google's Dataflow and AWS's, I think it's called Glue, I believe is like their managed ETL, uh, pipeline process. Those tools are primarily meant for, uh, you know, data engineers, and then you have open source technologies like Apache, Apache Airflow, uh, which we use internally at, at, at Coda. Um, but you have all these different tools, but they're not really meant for a business user. So if a business user wants to like edit the DAG for an Airflow job, I mean, that's going to be really difficult. So how do you make that more approachable and more, I hate the term, but no code uh, functionality for a business user? That's where the opportunity really lies. And... I've definitely tried playing around with some of these uh, cloud tools like uh, Google Cloud's Dataflow, and 
you can definitely power through it by going through the documentation, but it's not user-friendly at all. And uh, I think they further go on in the episode to talk about why ETL is so hard. And it's because ETL, number one, is specific to industries. So if you want to do ETL, an ETL process and pipeline for the health industry, it's going to be completely different from the ETL process for the transportation industry because of the domain expertise you need and the business uh, intelligence you need to know how the data should be flowing and being captured into different parts of the pipeline. Uh, so, so you have this domain expertise problem and then you have, I forgot what the second problem was. I think it was related to like being vertically integrated with other tools. Then you have to vertically integrate the ETL uh, application with all the other tools that are going on, which is just, again, a really difficult and laborious job for any data engineer. So multiple things going on there. Uh, at the, I think they mentioned a few other tools that have been built to make it simpler to use for non-technical folks. Um, I think they mentioned something like Airbnb's superset technology. Let me just look that up really quick. I don't know if this is actually meant to be business business user friendly superset uh superset is a modern enterprise ready business intelligence web application an intuitive interface also i guess it is kind of meant for the business user uh there's a nice fancy demo video as well looks very similar to google cloud studio uh google cloud's data studio or tableau uh, but again i think it was really important this trend to making it easier for non-data engineers to be able to work with different parts of the data pipeline seems to be a very uh, big opportunity and ripe opportunity for startups who want to disrupt the space. And it's going to be interesting to see different tools coming out of that, uh, that area. All right, so getting close to at the end here, I uh, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening. And one small plug for me is that uh, I actually released a new class on Skillshare. It's called the inter it's called Intermediate Excel for the Real World Cleaning Data for Analysis and uh, and Forecasting. So if you want to check out the show notes, you'll see a link to this new class. And um, if you're new to Excel or intermediate and you're trying to get deeper into Excel. Um, in terms of data cleaning and data analysis, feel free to take this class and we'd love to get your feedback about that. Uh, thanks for listening and I'll see you at the next episode. Mm-hmm.